But the passage this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're 10 weeks into the book of Ecclesiastes. We're on the 8th chapter, a little further than halfway through the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy for man. Man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have delivered through the mouth of Solomon in this book of Ecclesiastes. We ask our Lord and our God that you would be here with us this morning that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, and that you would be at work in our hearts, that we would see you more clearly, that we would grow to love you, that we would deny the works of the flesh, the deeds of this world, and that we would be made more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ, by the work of your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we begin looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, let me say our culture and our community uh, is very consumed with the pursuit of justice, okay? Justice. You think about the headlines that have dominated the news cycle over the last two years, and you realize almost everything has to do with justice. Think about this. Last two years, we had the presidential election two years ago, all the events that followed it. Uh, there was the, uh, the death of George Floyd and then the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer. There was the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was domestically the, the debates and conversations among the state and then the Supreme Court having to do with abortion. Uh, there was the uh, our leaving of Afghanistan, and then a number of issues in between. But these are the subjects that have dominated our news cycles. And I think it makes sense because as human beings created in the image of God, we have an innate desire to see justice achieved. 
and we have a, 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 an innate hatred for injustice. It just bothers us, okay? And so it would make uh, logical sense that these sorts of things would dominate our news cycles. Well, I told you when uh, we were in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes, when the subject of justice was first mentioned, I told you that justice would reoccur, the theme would come up again in this book, and we see it this morning in chapter 8, we'll continue to see it in the book of Ecclesiastes, but this morning in chapter 8, uh, the overwhelming subject of this chapter is the subject of justice, okay? And so this morning, we're going to talk about justice, justice and injustice. That is the content of chapter 8. Now, if you've seen the outline in the bulletin, you'll notice that there are three questions we're going to answer that will help us to understand this passage, okay? The first question is going to give us the foundation we need to understand the chapter. The second two questions will come directly from this chapter, helping us to understand Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Now, the first question we ask this morning is, what is justice and I will tell you, there's a very important passage in Scripture in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, that helps us to answer the question, what is justice? Let me read that passage to you. Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. Here the Lord God is giving instruction to His people about what it looks like to do justice or to deal justly in the land that they're about to enter into. He says there, you shall appoint judges and officers in all the towns that the Lord God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and it subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay? There is the establishment of biblical justice for the people of Israel. And you heard a number of important words that help us to understand the concept of justice. First of all, righteousness was mentioned many times there, righteousness. Okay? Uh, the text also says, show no partiality. Justice is blind. It is connected intimately with righteousness. And that's a theme that we will begin to see worked out in the pages of Scripture. Biblical justice is the Hebrew word zedek. It comes from the same root word as righteousness. These two words are married together in Scripture. So if we're to understand biblical justice, we have to understand biblical righteousness. Okay? That'll be one of the themes that we talk about this morning. I think there's also a sort of a, a helpful etymology in the English word for justice. The English word from the English word just is the Latin word jus or jus, which means the law. Okay, it means the law. Justice, if we want another definition for justice, is the right application of the law. And so biblically speaking, justice is the right application of the divine law of God. Okay, God gives His law. And when we rightly apply that, that is what the Bible calls justice, okay? I want to give you a picture, though, to understand not only this concept, but to help you understand the passage this morning. If you're like me, I've said this before, 
you could talk to me for 30 minutes and I'm going to walk away from here and I'm going to forget everything you just said. If you draw me a picture, maybe some things will stick with me, okay? So I'm going to draw you a picture. I hope these ideas will remain with you. The Lord God, here's God, we always put him at the top of the page. The Lord God creates everything that exists. He makes all of creation and he designs it with the overarching design implicit in all of creation. Okay, that's, that's my symbol for an overarching design. He makes everything that exists and he imparts it with a sort of DNA that causes it to function according to his design. And that's for everything. That's for humanity. It's for the animals. It's for the stars of the sky. It's for all of creation, that it might function according to his design, to glorify him, to cause us to enjoy him forever. We've, we've talked about that before, okay? Now, what we see in the course of redemptive history in the early pages of Genesis is that God gives us what you might call a handbook or a guidebook, a design that we might follow so that we know how to function in the creation, most importantly in the Old Testament and for our conversation this morning is the law. I would call the law a guidebook. You know, actually that's a biblical concept, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he says that the law was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster. It was designed to instruct and to guide the people of God, okay? So the law is designed by God given to his people that we might rightly understand all of creation. And we might know not only who he is, but how we are to function in creation. All right? Now, the law in the course of history, if you look at any law in the Old Testament, or God's revelation of the commands and his instructions to his people, every law incorporates two different pathways. Okay? We can call them the pathway of the right and the pathway of the unright. No matter what command you're reading, no matter what law of God you're reading, every time you read it, you will find that there's a, a pathway that is obedience unto the law. It is the conformity according to God's design, and that's the right. And then there's the disobedience of the law of God. That's a, a lack of conformity to the design of God's world, and that is the unright. We call them righteousness and, and unrighteousness. All right? The Bible says that each of these dispositions towards the design of God's world according to the law, each of them has a consequence. Okay? That for the right, we would call that a positive consequence. We tend to think of that as prosperity, of goodness, of life. You know? That for the unright, there is also a consequence. That would be the negative. Okay? Most importantly, the Bible describes it as destruction. All right? So that the the nonconformity to the law of God leads to unrighteousness and eventually produces this negative result, the destruction of, of humanity, of human beings, okay? This morning, I told you righteousness and justice are connected. Here's what righteousness deals, righteousness is this line here. This is the, the line of righteousness. Righteousness is the, the response to the law of God. Justice is the consequences to the response to the law of God. That is, if it is an unrighteous response to the law of God, the consequences that follow, this is what justice is, okay? It is just that a negative consequence would follow unrighteousness. It is just that a positive consequence would follow righteousness. So justice and righteousness are two different things, 
but they deal with the very same subject. Conformity to the design of God's world according, most importantly, to his law. All right? Now, let, let me say something about the law before we understand Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you've grown up in a tradition of Christianity or even a, somewhere else, not in Christianity, that, that, that has abused the law, you will struggle to understand justice according to the Bible. And let me tell you two ways we tend to abuse the law. First of all, there are those who would say the law is from the Old Testament, it is now done away with. It has no function in the world today. We don't need it. And you see that's very problematic because this is how we understand God's design for the world. We need it. We need the law. There are others who would say, according to the law, if we live perfectly according to the law, we will justify ourselves. And you have to do that. Okay? That doesn't leave room for grace, doesn't quite comprehend the nature of sin because though the law reveals God's design for this world, we realize very quickly, according to the law, that we cannot do all that God requires of us. Okay? So those are two abuses of the law in the church today. Now, if you're wondering how this functions, why it relates to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, let me, let me give you an example. I think you all relate with this, including children. So children, pay attention. I'll give you the example of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is this, honor your father and mother and it will go well with you, okay? Honor your father and mother. Right? And so this is a commandment from God, but listen, this is the law. It is God's revealing how life works according to his design. So let's talk about what the law is doing then. First of all, children, let me ask you, raise your hand if you've ever perfectly obeyed your parents your whole life. I was hoping I would get somebody to raise their hand. No, okay, you haven't. You children, you know. You have never perfectly obeyed your parents. You never will, okay? So we find out, first of all, that the law functions as a mirror. You've probably heard this before. The law is a mirror. When we look into the law of God, we realize we can't live according to the law. So children, when you realize that you are unable to perfectly obey your parents, it should probably produce a little bit of sadness in you but God uses the mirror of the law to move us to grace, that we say we need saving, okay? So the law is a mirror. That's the first way it's a schoolmaster to us. Second, the law is a fence, right? The law serves as a fence. That is to say, children, when you disobey your parents, let me ask you what happens. Think in your mind, what happens when you disobey your parents? You don't have to say it out loud, okay? But in your mind, when you disobey your parents, there is a consequence, isn't there? Every parent has different consequences, but there are consequences. The law provides consequences to sin because God doesn't want us to stay in unrighteousness, okay? So we have consequences to sin so that we are moved towards righteousness. That's the fence of the law. Finally, the law is a pathway, okay? It's a pathway. That is, it's a pathway to God. It tells us more about Him and His character and His nature. So children... God says, obey your parents or honor your father and mother so that you know there is an even greater authority over them to whom all human beings owe submission, honor, and obedience, okay? There is something of God's character as being over us and us being under him that is revealed through the law, and when we look into the law, we see what is good and glorifying to God. Isn't that amazing, all right? So this is God's revelation to us according to his law that we could understand what is right and we could understand what is not right. Tracking so far? Good, excellent, all right, terrific. 
So the second question this morning then is, there's no more room up there, I'll just tell you. The second question this morning is, then what's the problem? Okay, Ecclesiastes is a book about problems, isn't it? The problem in chapter 8 is most succinctly and pointedly expressed in verse 14. Here's what verse 14 says. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, okay? Once, once you begin to understand the nature of justice and you read this passage with those eyes, you see very quickly what Solomon's referring to. He says, there are those who are righteous who the end result is according to the wicked, right? Uh, it happens to them according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are those who are wicked that it happens to them according to the deeds of the righteous. He is saying that there are those who live according to God's law, but they end up with negative consequences. There are those who are unright, who are living in wickedness, but they end up with positive consequences. And Solomon says this is perplexing, it's vanity. It is utterly confusing to the mind. It sits sort of wrongly within us. It agitates the soul. It's the very thing that he's speaking about in verse 10. If you read verse 10 and you're wondering, what's he talking about verse 10? In verse 10 he says, there is a wicked man who gets a burial. And what he's saying there is, in, in this time period, there's two different types of burials. There were righteous men who were buried one way, and there were unrighteous who were buried an entirely different way, okay? And what he's saying is there's a wicked man who just got buried like a righteous man, all right? And then he says, and he was, when he was alive, he was coming and going to the temple. He was living like a righteous man, yet we all knew that he was wicked. It's a small expression or an articulation of this very thing. There are those who are righteous who receive or it happens to them that, like the deeds of the wicked. Okay? And so Solomon recognizes that, that though the law of God stands and it continues to remain and it tells us all about his creation, that there's something wrong with the administration of justice in this world. That it's perplexing that the result that we would expect is not the result that we often witness. Now, let me say something. All the news articles I mentioned to start the sermon, all of those news articles, you know why we care about those? Because we care about injustice, okay? When we observe this thing in the world, I tell you, it's just human nature that, we, that, that rubs us the wrong way. It always does. This is why we care about the war in Ukraine. We say, this, this doesn't seem right, okay? It doesn't seem just to us. This is also the reason, I'll give you an example I love dealing with controversial examples, so if you have a problem afterwards, you talk to me. But uh, I, I'll give you an example from, again, these last two years. This is also the reason that there's division in churches regarding some issues in society that deal with justice, okay? But I'll deal with the uh, example of, of George Floyd for a second, all right? George Floyd was a black man who was killed by a white police officer. You remember this, a few years ago. And this has not left our news cycle for years now, all right? And you see what's happening in a, in a case like that is there are multiple facets of questions of justice and injustice. This is not static, it's dynamic, and I'll give you at least two of those, okay? 
So God, according to his law, makes it very clear that, that racism is an unright response to the creation of the world, okay? It doesn't fit the character of God at all. So we know that racism is an unrighteous response that deserves a negative outcome. So we would expect that to be just, but you know what else? There's another dynamic going on, right? Civil obedience and civil disobedience, we know those things as well according to the law of God. Civil disobedience according to his law is unright. It deserves a negative consequence. Those are at least two dynamics that are at play that need to be answered in any situation that's dealing with justice, okay? So is justice been achieved or is it injustice? We have to ask those questions, but I'll tell you, here's my exhortation then. As a church, we're always going to wrestle over those issues that are happening in our culture, but this tells me it's incumbent upon Christians to withhold judgment, okay, until we know exactly what's happening. Right? We, as Christians, we have bought into the world's response. That is, we see something and we immediately make a judgment, right? But we can't make judgments about uh, justice and injustice until we have seen what is happening according to the law of God and the creation of this world. And there are lots of questions that ultimately need to be answered. Any given circumstance that need to be answered for us to determine, was it just? Was it unjust? Are there multiple levels of injustice? Are there two people being unjust towards one another, right? Lots of questions that need to be answered. And so it's incumbent, I think, upon Christians to withhold judgment until we've seen the facts and we can begin to determine how has the Lord God instructed according to this matter, and then what is our disposition as believers who are proclaiming justice in a broken world. So Solomon says there is a problem. Those who are living according to righteousness, it is happening to them according to the deeds of the wicked. I would say to you this morning, Solomon brings this up as a small problem. He says, you know, I have noticed that maybe the righteous, it's happening to them according to the deeds of the wicked. I would imagine that he probably understates what we all want to kind of overstate a little bit more because we, we experience this, don't we? This is our personal experience. We have been in many situations where we feel like we're living according to the right standards of God, but we experience the outcomes of the wicked. You go, honestly, you go to a place like we, we just were last week, you go to a place like Africa where uh, the country's 95% Muslim and there's very few Christians, and you will find over and over again uh, Christians who are living according to the right standards of God and who are receiving the outcomes of, of wicked people, right? It is happening to them as if it was injustice, Okay. And so we see that in this world. I would also say that the flip side of that is even worse. This is something I pray about, I pray against every day. I pray against this for my family. I pray against this for our church, okay? Because when we are involved in wicked deeds and we experience prosperity, I'll tell you there's like a double hardening of our hearts. We get cemented into our own sin because when we're in sin, and we find that we're prosperous in our sin, we, we tend to think, well, I guess I'm good with God, right? Uh, it must not be as bad as I thought it was you know, because things are good for me. That's something, again, I pray, pray against every day. You ought to be praying against that. We ought to be praying that if our brothers and sisters in Christ are living in wickedness, that they would be so agitated, so uncomfortable, that God would so burden their hearts that they, they could not sleep. 
that the consequences would be so terrible, so hard, so bad, that their sin would be exposed and that they would be moved from unrighteousness to righteousness. Okay? And, and yet Solomon says these two things often happen in our world. That's what the problem is according to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. But the final question then is, what is the answer? What is the answer? Well, I'll tell you, I, the answer often comes at the end of the passage, but not here. Uh, at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, if you were paying attention, it's the end of the chapter where Solomon says, well, the, you know, the wise man can't figure it out. There are no answer, even for the wisest of you know, wise people. And uh, what a great way to end a chapter, right? Um, no help there in solving the problem, but I do believe there's a very helpful answer in verses 12 through 13. Here's what those verses say. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Let me tell you just two brief takeaways from verses 12 and 13. First of all, Solomon tells us that the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the follower of God, one of the answers to this, this sort of messed up uh, lack of justice in this world is that the, the, uh, the son or daughter of the living God fears him, okay? So the fear of God is the first answer we get. You saw it there three times in verses 12 through 13, okay? It will go well with them who fear the Lord. Uh, and, and they will be prospered, those who fear the Lord. He mentions it three times, all right? And I think one of the things that Solomon has in mind is that even in this world, as we experience this sort of uh, mixed up consequences of righteousness and unrighteousness, yet we know that it's the living God who has designed all things, who has given us his law, who has revealed himself to us. And if we recognize that about God, that he is the author of all things, that he has authority over all creation, that he orders all of the days of our lives, if we realize that about him, no matter what's happening around us, we fear him, right? We say, uh, well, I know what it looks like, but I know who God is, okay? And I know what you think might be happening, but I guarantee that's not what it is, okay? And uh, I may feel a certain way, and yet I fear God. That's the, the reverence, it's the praise, it's the awe, it's the disposition that looks at God and says, okay, well, well he's God. Right? And I, yet I not comprehend, yet he still remains God. And so Solomon says we are driven, first of all, by a fear of God. And let me tell you, Christians, that's ultimately why we care about all the social issues of our world. Whether or not justice or injustice is happening, we are advocates for justice in this world because we fear the Lord. Okay? And so all of the issues I mentioned and more the church must care about because God cares about it. And he has designed this world according to his law that we follow his law and we see justice in this world and he desires that his people also would care about those things because we fear him. And so do we care about homelessness? Yes, we care about homelessness. Do we care about immigration? Yes, we care about immigration. We care about abortion. We care about our neighbors. We care about children. We care about our families, and we care about our marriages. Why? Uh, because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the heart. The precepts of the Lord are good, right? You, you go through all that the psalmist says about the law of God. This is true, and then we fear him because of it, and then we care about the things in our world, okay? So 
first of all, Solomon says, um, no matter what's happening in this world, we who are followers of God, we fear him. And we live in light of that fear. The second thing in verses 12 through 13, um, very similar and yet different. Verse 13 says, but, sorry, not verse 13. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Let me tell you something briefly about that verse, okay? You may know this and you may not know this, but in the Hebrew language, there is no grammatical tenses, which means uh, that when you write a word, you can't tell whether the word is in the past, the present, or the future. It's, it's actually an interesting conundrum in Hebrew. Many languages, you can add an ending or a beginning, or you can change the word, and you say, oh, that's a past tense word. That's very helpful. But Hebrew's not like this, okay? Lots of translation questions about past, present, and future. But when an author wants to tell you this is definitively the time period I'm talking about, they often use other words, adjectives, to describe what they're referring to. And that's what Solomon does here in verse 12. It's a little bit unique, and it is a, it is a word that the prophets often use to speak about something that will happen in the future, okay? So when the prophets say, one day it will come to pass, that's a, a Hebrew word that means something in the future is going to happen. That's the word that Solomon uses here. He says, one day it will come to pass that it will be well, right? One day it will come to pass that it will be well. I think that's Solomon's foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, okay? This is a, it's a, it's a forward-looking prophecy that he observes that in this world there's a lack of justice, okay? That there's a broken correlation between right and unright. But he says in verse 12, one day it will come to pass, that it will be well. I want to, just as we wrap up this passage, I want to share this poem with you. This is so interesting. I got, I got home on Tuesday from Africa. My daughter was sick, so she was at home that day, and she was sitting on the couch, and she had this newspaper article. I recognized it. It came out of uh, our family Bible. And so we've, the Rigg family's got this Bible that I've, it's now in my possession. It's been around for two or three hundred years. Um, and uh, I've seen this article in there before, but my daughter had pulled it out and she said, Dad, listen to this poem. This is terrific. And she read it to me and I thought, well, that would be wonderful for the sermon, right? So thank God he works in many ways through our children as well. This is an article, comes from a newspaper from July 25th, 1861, okay? This is three months after the beginning of the Civil War. You want to find a time period where people are wondering, where's the justice of God? You can go back and find the Civil War. All Christians... We're wondering, where, where's the justice of God? What's happening here? Listen to this poem, and I'll use this to conclude this passage. The author says, When we reach a quiet dwelling on the strong eternal hills, and our praise to him is swelling, who the vast creation fills. When the paths of prayer and duty and affliction all are trod, and we wake and see the beauty of our Savior and our God. With the light of resurrection, when our changed bodies glow, and we gain the full perfection of the bliss begun below. When the life that flesh obscureth and each radiant form shall shine. And the joy that I endureth flashes forth in beams divine. While we wave the palms of glory through the long eternal years, shall we ever forget the story of our mortal griefs and fears? Shall we ever forget the sadness and the clouds that hung so dim? 
when our hearts are filled with gladness and our tears are dried by him. It's not the end of the poem. There's more. I just can't read it. It's gone. Okay? But I, when I heard that, it, it begged a very important question for me. The, the author of this poem is saying, one day when we join our Savior and we see him face to face, will all of this be forgotten? And I would add, will all of this be remedied? Will it be taken care of? Will injustice be undone? And will we forget it? Okay? It's a really good question, and I think Solomon gives us the seed to begin the conversation about future hope. For he says, one day it will come to pass that it all will be well. One day it will be that all of this will be no more, and you will forget about it. And all wrongs will be righted. See, every page of Ecclesiastes provides us the conversation starter for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will connect you from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 all the way to 1 Peter chapter 3. Listen to 1 Peter 3. Peter is talking about this very thing. He says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You see what he's saying? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that's the world, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. You see what he's saying? When you live as righteous and you suffer as the unrighteous, always be prepared to give an answer of why you're still here. Right? Why, if the world is saying, why do you live that way and yet you still suffer Always be prepared to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Now this is the important part of that passage in 1 Peter. For Christ... Peter puts Jesus over here. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You hear what he just said? He suffered. Christ came and he suffered the judgment of the unrighteous that we might become the righteousness of God. Now let me tell you, I would... For this morning's sake, let me just substitute those words righteous for just. The just for the unjust, okay? The beautiful picture of the revelation of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is this. This is the beautiful truth this morning. We're, we're not the righteous. You know, I've been saying here we are over here, and yeah, we should live according to the righteousness of God, but we're not the unrighteous. The way we, we knew that was from the fifth commandment this morning. The children knew that they were unrighteous, Okay? We are, we are the unright. The Bible says this is who we are. So one very real sense, when you say, well, I'm, I'm doing what is right according to God, but I continue to suffer, you know, the reality is actually we're the unright. We're the ones who deserve the negative consequences, the destruction of God, the wrath that would be poured out upon sin, the result of the enemies of the living God, okay? But as Peter says, Christ came and he suffered the consequences 
once for all, the just for the unjust. And you see the beauty then, right? Because we don't stand in a world saying, well, what's going on with the justice of God? We stand in a world saying, thank God that we don't deserve, we don't, we don't get justice. Though we deserved it, we who are unrighteous have been made righteous, and because he has paid our price, we now prosper with him for eternity. So the beauty of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is that though in this world we long for justice, we seldom see it, yet we know that we have not received justice. But because of Christ Jesus who suffered our just condemnation, we have received His righteousness that we would prosper forever and so the words of Solomon could be true one day. It will come to pass that it will be well. It will be well for you and I because of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have loved us so much to send him to die on our behalf that we could be redeemed. And we ask this morning, as we worship you, would you help us to see, Lord, that we are not the righteous. We are the unrighteous. You have called us your enemies. You have called us dead in our sin. You have called us children of this age. But, Lord, that is our former self. We are no longer dead in our transgressions. We are no longer enemies of the living God. We are no longer wicked because your Son has made us to be your children. And so we who were unjust have become justified in grace. We have received the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we stand boldly before your throne, knowing, Lord God, that though sin still remains in our hearts, yet you see us covered by the blood. You see us worthy, worthy of you. You see us, according to your Son, who lived the law perfectly, who was justified in all that he did, and yet he laid down his life that we might be redeemed. We thank you. And we praise you. We ask this morning that you would continue to meet here with us for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.